0: afternoon, everyone, and good morning. Uh, my name is Will Pomeranz. I'm deputy director of the Kennan Institute. And I'd like to welcome you to day two of reappraising the wild 90s in Russia, looking back after 30 years. Um, this is day two, but I'm going to repeat the introduction because I'm not sure if everyone who attended yesterday is, is also attending today. But the idea of this conference originated with a discussion t- in terms of how to mark the forthcoming 30th anniversary of the collapse of the Soviet Union. And instead of going over well-trodden territory, we decided to focus on the differing American and Russian memories of the 1990s and the immediate post-Soviet experience. In many ways, the reaction to this turbulent decade still influences the US-Russian relationship. Now, in order to give full attention to these experiences, we decided to divide this conference into two days. Um, And yesterday we talked about the American experience, and today we have a very talented and prominent group of people to talk about the Russian experience. The goal of the conference, again, is to have a well-rounded conversation amongst various actors who are on the ground during this decade. And moreover, we want to focus on the individual experience of the speakers um, and, and to, to, to get a more personal touch about the events. So we welcome you today, too. Um, we're going to begin uh, with Olga Melanova. Uh, the biographies, uh, the bios of the various speakers are on our website. So I'm just going to give very short bios and then we will um, go proceed to the discussions. Uh, again, we'll have plenty of time for questions. So if you want to ask a question, you can email us at kenan@wilsoncenter.org, or go to our Twitter site at Kennan Institute or write on our Facebook page. Please include your name and affiliation when submitting a question. Well, we're going to begin, as I said, with Olga Malinova uh, Olga is a professor at the Higher School of Economics and a Chief Research Fellow at the Institute of Scientific Information for Social Sciences at the Russian Academy of Sciences. She is also a short term, she was also a short term scholar at the Ken Institute and is a valued member of our advisory council. So Olga, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. It's really a a honor for me to uh, be in in this panel and to start this panel. Well, uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union that took place uh, 30 years ago is often considered in Russia uh, as uh, a starting point uh, of of what uh, in Russian public discourse is labeled uh, it's difficult uh, to translate it to English in a single world, a word as, as, as uh, it is both, uh, wild 1990s, hot 1990s, dash 1990s, etc. Uh, though, of course, the troubles that associated with this colloquialism uh, actually started earlier. And... Uh, yesterday it was uh, spoken a lot uh, about the very beginning uh, of the 1990s uh, about the end of perestroika Uh, actually the difficulties people remember started in the end of the 80s however in Russian public discourse the misery of the 1990s are mostly associated with the consequences of economic reforms that started started in 1992 uh, it brings us uh, to the vagaries of memory. Remembering and forgetting are rather selective things. Uh, and what and how we remember is actually uh, uh, largely connected on socially available frames and narratives. Uh, th- those frames are, and narratives are uh, shared both uh, in private, uh, conversations, uh, and in public uh, discourses, Uh, however, uh, it's really very important, and I think that it's particularly important uh, in the case of a decade of large-scale social transformations. Uh, The collapse of the Soviet Union and the collapse of the Soviet system, social economic system, uh, was the collapse of uh, the habitual social world for millions of people. It, it really was an extraordinary and often traumatic uh, experience. And it demanded special tools to be grasped. Of course, uh, various and actually competing interpretations were produced on a daily basis by politicians and media, uh, and also by filmmakers, uh, scholars, writers, uh, and later by memoirists, etc. Uh, however, I should say that the very fact of pluralism of the available interpretations of what was going on uh, was stressful for many uh, of people who were socialized uh, in the society with dominating ideology. And many people felt lost in this uh, chaotic. Uh, 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 Sphere of multiple discourses, multiple explanations, etc. Anyhow, it definitely needed time to elaborate semantic tools for, for grasping this quickly changing reality. Uh, according to sociologists, in particular, I could refer to Alexei Levinson's uh, research uh, based on surveys taken in the 1990s. Actually, the qualification of the 1990s uh, as uh, the hard decade came later. It, it happened uh, in the beginning or in mid-2000s. Uh, and uh, in the 1990s actually service registered greater dispersion between positive and negative attitudes to what was going on. Uh, by the way, uh, the appearance of the colloquialism uh, in mid-2000s uh, also was a good indicator uh, there are some discussions about the authorships uh, of uh, this colloquialism and um, about its time it, it appeared. However, the, there is uh, a research of uh, Anastasia bonchas based on content analysis of the Russian National Cor- Corpus database. That has demonstrated that um, uh, the colloquialism Lehi Divinosti appeared in 2005 and quickly proliferated uh, largely displaced alternative characteristics of the debate in in particular in, in media texts. It, it's very interesting. It, it tells a lot about how it was retrospectively constructed. Uh, this tendency of negative framing of the 1990s is rather salient now. The survey taken by Levada Center in March 2020, uh, since 20, 30 years after the beginning of the decade, revealed that uh, 62% of respondents uh, hold uh, that the 1990s has brought more bad things than good ones, Uh, and only 19% uh, believed uh, that good things prevail. Remarkably, that this difference in opinions, um, uh, the the, the difference in opinions between those who entered the 1990s, young or adult, was not so great. Actually, almost those who in 1990 were under 30 um, answered that um, uh, there were 65% of those who were young in the 1990s uh, hold that uh, bad things prevailed. While those who were elder, who uh, they were 70% uh, in bad opinion about 1990s. Also, it's remarkable that younger people, those who were born later or who were very small in 1990 appeared slightly more positive. Among this group, uh, um, uh, there were uh, 53 persons who answered that bad things. However, we can see that uh, it's pretty general opinion that the 1990s were a bad time. Of course, the reality was much more complicated, not so far as some groups, though definitely not a majority, actually benefited from the reform. However, in the Russian public discourse, the opposition between the hot 1990s and the stable 2000s uh, is an often used. It plays a remarkable role in the legitimization of Putin's politics uh, since his coming to power. Uh, it facilitated uh, marginalization of the liberals uh, that started with the reform of party system in early 2000s uh, it was one of the pillars for recent consolidation of the conservatives and it became a strong argument in contemporary discussions about political and economic reforms my research of Putin's rhetoric from 2000 to 2018, revealed that uh, he regularly appeals to the experience of the 1990s. It might be said that the myth about the hot 1990s became a key element of uh, narratives legitimizing Putin's regime, uh, as well as specific political decisions. Paradoxically enough, the tendency of negative framing of the experience of the 1990s is supported by the discourses of opposition as well. Uh, It's quite expectable in the case of the communist and other leftists for whom uh, the Soviet Union was a lost paradise. However, the discourse of the liberals also in a way contributes to this negative framing, as it's largely focused on justification of the difficult decisions made in the 1990s or post-factum analysis of the past mistakes. So um, in the liberal discourse, uh, the image of the hard decade uh, uh, is not uh, somehow um, challenged. However, in recent years, uh, some ind- there are some indicators of changes uh, in public representations of uh, the 1990s. On the one hand, uh, they result from uh, deliberate efforts of some mnemonic actors uh, to challenge the negative narrative about the 1990s. Uh, Yeltsin Center, Uh, that was launched uh, in 2015 in Yekaterinburg uh, with uh, the museum of Boris Yeltsin as uh, the main uh, uh, element of this uh, public center uh, became the major mnemonic player in this field. Uh, Both the center and the museum conduct multiple projects commemorating the 1990s as a complicated but uh, still uh, positive time Uh, They are quite visible uh, on the federal level. Nonetheless, uh, because of first reaction to this initiative from the sides of conservatives and communists. On the other hand, there are some shifts at the social level that result from dynamics of generations. As soon as the 1990s became uh, the time of our fathers, Uh, the generations of sons and daughters reveal more interest to social practices of that time. It brings a lot of nostalgic projects uh, such as flash mobs uh, in social networks with publishing photos of the 1990s, discussing the music of the 1990s, uh, uh, organizing parties in the style of the 1990s, etc. As a result, at the social level, uh, memory about this uh, period becomes more variegated. This does not make a visible impact to political discourse uh, up to now. Uh, In the political discourse, discourse, uh, any mention about the 1990s is framed negatively, mostly negatively. However, I think that in close future, we shall witness a movement towards a critical revision of the legacy of the 1990s. Uh, And this is because the very importance of this negative myth about the Daesh 1990s for the official discourse makes it challenging and important part of the positional agenda. I believe it will happen pretty soon. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Olga. Uh, Our next speaker uh, is Andrei Kozorov. He served as the first foreign minister of Russia from 1991 to 1996. Uh, he is um, also the author of, of the book, The Firebird, and was a fellow at the Wilson Center, uh, where he, we were pleased to have him uh, join our, our group, and where he wrote his book. So Andre, the floor is yours. Un- un- unmute. Unmute. You're, you're muted.
2: No? okay okay well hi long time no see <clears throat> yes and, and i see some other uh familiar faces it's it's quite a uh, pleasure to meet everybody and uh it's unusual setting you don't see any audience
0: or nothing it's like just in between us <laughs> But, but don't don't worry there there is a big audience so um it's, it's secret conversation like yes <laughs>
2: one one more conspiracy theory that the Wilson Center is probably trying to repeat what happened 30 years ago and you probably guys <clears throat> missed that's why I'm sorry I'm a little um delayed with with entering the club. But you probably missed the news of the morning. It was just announced that President Biden uh, granted $40 million for the Wilson Center, especially devoted to the Russian studies. Ah, how about that? Any comments immediately?
0: No. That's very good news. I I will have to confirm that, though. Um, uh, We 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 do have our annual appropriations, but it's very good that uh, President Biden, who is a longtime friend of the Wilson Center, is uh, supportive of the of our activities. Yeah, and he he's uh, kind of
2: uh, trying to spend uh, some bucks to come back and come back better. Uh, Though I'm looking now at the calendar and it's uh, April 1st. So don't don't spend too much time researching this Um, but sooner or later it it will happen. And uh, uh, coming back to, to the subject I thought it was like sharing personal. Uh, my personal um, was, um, my personal recollections boiled down to a couple of um, feelings. You know, the first one was fear. Second one was intense fear. When I saw the tanks and all that, uh military force coming uh to the uh so-called white house and um, then i felt a determination uh, my own and determination of some just handful probably of people who were uh, there at at the earlier stage then i felt more and more pride when i saw people Coming uh, both to the White House, some of those prominent intellectuals, uh, even a uh, cello uh, genius uh, that was, um, and some other, I mean, like uh, intellectuals, musicians, even, and uh, uh, writers, uh, uh, and intelligentsia. And next were. Uh, hundreds then thousands of people around the uh, White House uh, who finally won. I mean, the people finally won. And then I felt intense uh, pride and intense admiration uh, for the people. So that was the mixture of of my feelings uh, that day that morning especially Uh, and uh, I I should say that the pride for the Russian people especially for the young people who were around there standing strong against uh, the tanks uh, and three heroes uh, unfortunately lost their life Um, but um, that, that remains with me and I, I think will remain forever. And I tried to express it in my book, which you just mentioned. And that's the firebird, the firebird is the hope, the belief that sooner or later, Russian people will be able to catch the firebird that is the fire of, of democracy. Uh, and again, I still believe that that will happen because of that experience of the uh, August 19, uh, 1991. I saw how it works. Uh, so I think it, it's the highest point actually in Russian history because that sets a precedent now we can say that there is a precedent when Russian people uh, rose up to occasion, and uh, stood up uh, firm, determined, uh, and uh, that's very important.
0: Thank you very much, Andre. Uh, we will now go to uh, Mikhail Fishman. He is a filmmaker and the anchor at TV Rain. Uh, he is also the former editor in chief of at the Moscow Times and Russian Newsweek. Uh, again, if you want to ask questions, you can send them by email at Wilson Center. Uh, Wilson Center. Uh, at Wilson Center. org. Ken- Kenan at Wilson org. You can Contact us via Twitter at Canon, or uh, pose a question on our Facebook page. So Mikhail, the floor is yours.
3: Uh, well, um, uh, hello and thank you, thank you very much. It's uh, an honor to be part of this uh, respected um, uh, panel. It's um, so we, when since we're celebrating the what thirty years from of the collapse of the Soviet uh, system, it of course brings us to. Uh, it's basically the uh, following up of this constant uh, discussion, polemics about uh, why Russian democracy failed, who's to blame, uh, why this project, which uh, in uh, which ju- this journey uh, on which Russia embarked in the early 90s ended where it ended. Actually, who is to blame? Is it the West is it Russia? Who in Russia? Uh, and it's a long and uh, lo- long discussion, of course. And I'm I I uh, I don't feel uh, competent enough to speak out about uh, how is what mistakes were made by 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 the West or um, how the West uh, um, misguided Russia or or gave uh, some uh, positive, um, advice. I, uh, since specifically, since we have a first, uh, uh, hand source here, uh, like Andre Kozarev who actually, uh, knows it, uh, firsthand. And, and, and of course I will not speaking out from my personal memories because I was, I mean, these were days of my, uh, my, 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 my early years, like very happy days, but I will, I, I'll just make few points from, what I learned recently going through the history of the 90s. And uh, 4 I'd say, four biggest, largest illusions that I think uh, in, with which Russia entered, um, approached this huge uh, transformation, dramatic uh, of the scale never seen before in the uh, late 80s, early 90s. And these illusions, I think, it's, uh, it's what I believe um, were shared across uh, across Russia starting with uh, with with intelligentsia or whoever in, in just Russian Russian nation and ending up with I don't know Boris Yeltsin to um, or uh, members of the elite and also I think uh, by 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 the West and the Western elites as well uh, I think these illusions were shared by the let's say both sides of uh, Western Russian border. So the the first illusion uh, that uh, uh, I think is uh, worth talking about was the the illusion that freedom actually equals democracy, that freedom is uh, democracy. Um, From 1990 and onward for some few years, some time at least, Uh, Russia was as free as a state as it probably never been before. Um, Personal freedoms, individual freedom, freedom of of speech, freedom of uh, religion, freedom of conscience, freedom of movement, freedom of uh, um, assembly, freedom of gathering, uh, you name it. Uh, All these freedoms suddenly, well, out of the blue, basically, uh, became well, if not absolute, but uh, by absolute by 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 the standards of Russian history. Uh, on the level of national on of national conscience, these ideas of uh, what is freedom and why freedom is democracy, they of course started to grow in the uh, second part of the eighties, when uh, with Perestroika, of course, and. Uh, um, and it worked like, uh, basically it worked like, th- like this. I'm not, the less I'm afraid of the state, the more I'm free. This, this is how, how it worked. And it was a gradual, gradual process during these years. Uh, in other words, it meant that it's, an, it's basically enough to break up with the totalitarian uh, past to secure the democratic future. Uh, Russia is free from the Soviet rule um, Russia. That means that Russia respects uh, individual rights, human rights, and that means that Russia is democratic. Democracy, democracy is achieved um, already. I, um, um, I can remind you when uh, Russia's uh, um, what's the uh, Congress of a National of uh, of People's Deputies, the proto-parliament, right? Uh, which was uh, elected in 1990 in its first uh, uh, really free uh, election when it um, was passing the declaration of Russia's independence, Yeltsin um, Ye- Yeltsin spoke out and he said, um, Russia's primary independence is an individual and his rights. That's exactly, that's, that's a direct, direct quote. Um, and, uh, and that was very, very important. Since we are independent from Soviet past, uh, we respect human rights. We respect individual as an individual from capital I, and, uh, and we're free. And uh, that means that democracy is just one step away. Uh, that's illusion number one. Illusion number two, was that uh, the abolition of the communist system actually equals uh, capitalism and this miracle of the West and prosperity, which is also very also very important? This was I remember it from this. This I remember very well from uh, from, from from my uh, years back, back back then. This image of uh, of of the West of uh, colorful, tasty, juicy, uh, rich. Abundant everything, uh, smell, neon lights. Um, I remember it very well, and I think that this was this image that, as soon as you uh, break up with your, with, uh, with, with with communism, you get there, you get what you what you are seeing on your uh, on, 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 on television, and it and this image was in such contrast with what actually uh, with with reality back back then. Dark, empty, um, um, cold—that it felt like some some other planet, actually. And uh, um, and this feeling and these emotions, I think, were quite universal. Again, on both sides of uh, of Russian Soviet uh, border back then. I. Uh, mm, um, we know that Yeltsin, when he was in the States in the, it was September, 98, 1989. He was in Houston and he uh, was in a supermarket and he was uh, looking at the shelves and he was almost crying, um, seeing this miracle, seeing this dream come true. And uh, the idea, his idea, everyone's idea was that we break up with the with the, with the current system with, the, with, the, with, with communism we make one little next step reforms and we get there and this is our dream and it and it's coming through this was of course an illusion. Third illusion was that election a single election equals equals democracy also very important one I think uh, as soon as you elect, your leader, and he and this leader enjoys uh, confidence of uh, uh, of the of the nation. Your democratic future is secured. Um, the stronger this elected leader is, the better. Uh, Yeltsin, uh, again, uh, we all uh, we all remember that Yeltsin was. Uh, uh, during his fight with Gorbachev, Yeltsin was remembered, was, uh, was seen as a, as a strong leader, as opposed to Gorbachev who was weak. And it was his benefit, his democratic benefit that he was a strong leader and seen as a strong, as seen as a strong leader. That was his advantage. Uh, his election in uh, 1991, what, two months before, before the coup, election as, as president, uh, was seen as totally historic transformation. Of course, and it was such, <laughs> of course it was, um, because it just basically never happened before in Russian history that the uh, Russian nation elected its leader. Um, and Yeltsin's, um, again, when he was... Uh, was um, um, after being elected, uh, elected pre- as, uh, as, as president, he said that we just, Russia has not elected the pre- just its president, Yeltsin said, but it, they elected their path to democracy, their path to reforms, their path to, again, direct quote, rebirth of human dignity. They, these were all equal um, notions back then. And um, after the coup, few months after, um, one of the voices of Russian intelligentsia back, back then, Alexander Gelman, a publicist and uh, um, a journalist, I, go, I guess, back then, uh, he, it was November 1991, uh, when um, just after Yeltsin and the Supreme Council postponed the, uh, the elections on the ground and uh, the adoption of new constitution in favor of economic reforms, he was writing in uh, Moskovsky Novosti newspaper Moscow Mos- Moscow News he was asking uh, posing the question do democracy and strong power uh, actually go a strong leadership whatever uh, go along with each other and his an- and his answer was weak leadership will almost certainly destroy uh, your our democracy Strong leadership may lead to democracy, but it also can bring, of course, the nation to the rule, uh, to the, to, um, the nation to, uh, to autocracy. But since our leadership is, uh, enjoys the confidence of, of the nation, uh, our democratic future is secured. The strong, and we have a strong president, uh, people trust him and therefore the future looks bright. And again, this was uh, the. Um, I think this this idea was shared by 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 uh, vast majority of intelligentsia back then, and also, but and just across uh, across again across the nation. Um, so only now, well, long long after that, we learned that democracy consists of elections on very, very many levels, starting from municipal level and, and, and from, uh, it consists of checks and balances. It's, it's, it's a very um, complicated uh, construction. It has to be grassrooted. But back then, no one understood that, I think. Again, uh, not only, uh, not only uh, in Russia, but also in probably the West, that Russia actually needs it and lacks it and don't doesn't understand it. That's, uh, that's what I, I think is true. And uh, the, fourth, uh, the fourth illusion is that, uh, uh, that uh, of course, um, that transformation to market economy is more important than uh, actually building the democratic um, political infrastructure. It was exactly the choice that, uh, uh, that uh, as it was seen, again, in the fall of 1991, after the coup, when Yeltsin, his elite, and uh, the government and the Supreme Council, the deputies had to decide where to go next, what, what should be their next step. Uh, and uh, Yeltsin late, later confirmed that it was probably a mistake to freeze the election because they freeze the election across the whole, uh, the whole country in favor of uh, economic reforms that uh, uh, specifically assembled Gaidar government um, had to implement starting from 1992. And um, we also, again, of course, understand where this illusion, uh, illusion came from. It came through, to a large extent uh, from, the, uh, from the feeling that democracy was already achieved to a big extent. We need only maybe, maybe something like we, we are already there. It already happened. But uh, the economics, the Soviet economic system remains untouched. And we have to uh, and we have to reform it and we have to choose we ha- we, you you only have to pick one uh, can you only can uh, can pick one uh, and um, and th- this choice was made and again Yeltsin confirmed later that it was probably a mistake and again probably this is also the illusion that was shared not only not only here in Russia but also in the West as well these are these four points that I wanted to make thank you
4: unmute will
0: unmute please okay sorry <laughs> um, i'm i'm still working on the illusions so um <laughs> but I, I i i do want to kind of emphasize that uh if you have questions you can send them to us at uh, via email at 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 twitter at canon institute or on our facebook page uh our next speaker is Katharina mishina She is an independent legal scholar who also served as the principal advisor to the Chief Justice of the Constitutional Court from 1995 to 1997. So Katya, the floor is yours.
4: Thank you so much. Uh, hello everyone. And many thanks for uh, Canon Institute for organizing the event de- dedicated to the wild 1990s because for a number of years, at least for 10 years, I'm trying to present a different image of this time. And this is vitally important for me, both because I worked at, the se- at that time and was very active. And second, because this is so unfair. The coverage that uh, this decade receives in the Russian official media now and also in the research uh, pieces is absolutely one-sided. So before sharing my personal experience and as the organizers requested, we need to make it very, very personal and I'll do my best uh, to share my personal experience with me. I just want to briefly mention the importance of this period was the time when for the very first time in its history, Russia uh, not only adopted but efficiently developed such important concepts as rule of law, separation of powers, real federalism, not like a uh, quasi-federalism of the times of the Soviet Union. That was the time when Russia completely changed its international presence. That was the time when the Cold War war ended due to the joint efforts of many countries, and Russia presented its different international image as the country who welcomed international law, who for the first time in its history embraced uh, universally uh, established fundamental principles of international law and established priority of international law in its constitution, namely in part four of article 15, of the 1993 Constitution of the Russian Federation. That was the time of big reforms. First of all, the establishment of the Constitutional Court of the Russian Federation, the institution uh, which had its predecessor in the Soviet times, I mean, the the, uh, Committee of Constitutional Supervision. But then in the middle of 1991, we got the real Constitutional Court, um, which operated until the octo until october of 1993, then its activities were postponed until the new federal constitutional law, the constitutional court, was adopted in 1994, and then the enlarged court started uh, its operations as well in 1995, and I, I hope that Sergey will confirm my words, it gave a, a completely new image of the Russian court, both in the way it handled cases in, in the way it delivered decisions in, for, in, in favor of uh, citizens, like uh, children of uh, political prisoners, and other very important cases which came up to the agenda right after the court restarted its operations. And also, it presented a new model of interactions between the courts and media due to the joint efforts of the press uh, of the press service of the of the Constitutional Court and its uh, Chief Justice, Vladimir Alexandrovich Tumanov. That was the time when uh, Russia uh, had uh, under uh, under uh, when russia had tremendous changes in its legislation the new uh, criminal code was adopted in 1996 All two parts of the civil code of the russian federation were adopted in the 1990s jury trials were restored and started uh, their activities f- first in nine regions of the russian federation and then they extended uh, their operations to the entire territory of Russia. And uh, that was an amazing time when Russia had no polit- political prisoners, when Russia had a, legal, a real political competition, real parliament. Uh, that was the time when freedom of speech, freedom of assembly were not just written in the Constitution. We had their freedoms also envisioned in the Stalin's Constitution of, of 1936, and we all knew how these uh, constitutional provisions were enforced in that time. But in 1990s, we had real democracy. That was a painful transition because uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, which took place in 1991 and was finalized in December of 1991, was not something which like came up to the agenda all of a sudden. It was a long awaited death. And that was a logical end of the existence of the Soviet Union. And uh, at that time, uh, life changed completely. So getting to the personal experience. In, in June of 1991, I was packing my things in the student dorm of the law school of uh, New York University where I spent one academic year as a research fellow uh, because of the year before that I won a, a competition. I received a scholarship and uh, because of that scholarship, I. Uh, completed my dissertation, dedicated all of a sudden to Woodrow Wilson. So I came back in June and everyone, uh, all my friends, all my classmates, they were stopping by and saying, Katya, what are you doing? Are you sure you're going back to the Soviet Union? Are you crazy? Have you heard that there are like people uh, lining up for bread, that there are so many terrible things going? And I said, yes, I'm going there. I'm going there because, you know, I could feel this freedom from the distance. That was a completely new feeling. And that there was never a day when I would regret about that. Uh, about my decision to come back, it was the time of big changes, and here I would like to get back to the uh, request of the organizers and to comment on how the how the Western countries helped Russia to get through this painful and complicated transition period. First of all, uh, there was a big help uh, coming in the form of providing education options for Russian students, uh, graduate students, and uh, young scholars. There were various programs uh, designed for uh, students from the Soviet Union, all parts of the Soviet Union, which was disintegrating at the same time. But nevertheless, many NGOs, many research institutions, many educational institutions welcomed students from the former Soviet Union and offered them tremendous opportunities to get a very good education and to bring these new skills to their home countries. Uh, training options definitely must be mentioned here. And I mean, training programs which were designed all, not for students, but for young professionals and specifically for young leaders. I attended one of such programs in 1993, and that was actually the time, Will, when you met, when we you and I met in 1993 that was an amazing program when i spent six weeks in the office of diana Rohrabacher, a congressman from orange county in longworth building and then there was six more weeks in the uh washington office of Gardner Curtin and douglas and american law firm when i got a real understanding of of how American lawyers really work. I had some sort of understanding about this before, because in 1992, several international law firms opened their offices in Russia, and specifically in Moscow. And I was lucky enough to get a position of an associate lawyer in the first private Russian law firm, which was affiliated with Milbank, Tweed, Hadley, and McCloy. And this is another way uh, of help offered by the West to Russia because Russian lawyers were receiving experience, guidance, training. They learned how to draft contracts. They learned how to uh, write in proper English, not the Russian English or Soviet English that we were taught in our schools and universities, but real English. They were taught how to communicate with the clients and how to offer legal support uh, for uh, uh, emerging and developing economic ties of Russia with the international partners. Definitely, I must mention the help in drafting the legislation, specifically the code of criminal procedure. A lot of help was offered in this realm because that was a big problem for Russia, because it took more than 10 years to pass a new code of criminal procedure. Uh, the, there cannot be a real democracy b- without changes in criminal law and a criminal procedure. And that's where uh, the Western experts offered their guidance, their experience, their help, their support, and such absolutely unknown foreign concepts as presumption of innocence and other important concepts were uh, adopted and is envisaged on the legislative level. Uh, Another important thing, which I think, uh, w- w- which definitely deserves mentioning, is uh, the operation of the Russian Office of American Bar Association. That's how American lawyers helped Russian lawyers to uh, develop like new areas of knowledge to receive proper training. Because with the disintegration of the Soviet Union, with the change of the economic system, uh, Russian lawyers faced very important and challenging tasks because we had to provide legal support in uh, transactions which were non-existent in the times of the Soviet Union due to the nature of the socialist economy. Uh, That was exactly the reason why the system of arbitration courts, not like quasi arbitration courts which existed at the times of the Soviet Union, but real arbitration courts, able to handle economic disputes were established in July of 1991. And uh, one more thing which I thing which I uh, must mention now, I know that I'm running of time, but I hope you will will give me two more minutes, is the help of foreign and international institutions and NGOs in uh, starting and running very important programs, both research programs and educational programs aiming at... uh, anti-corruption efforts, promoting of democratic values, promoting of legal culture. culture. And here, uh, I must say that without this help, it would be really very, very hard because we couldn't start from scratch. We couldn't start from scratch. That is why we definitely needed to receive not only foreign solutions, but advice from our foreign colleagues. And as a lawyer, who uh, completed uh, the training and completed my education in 1992. That was the year when I received my PhD in the Institute of uh, State and Law of the Russian Academy of Sciences. And then I started working first in the private law firm, then in the State Duma, then in the Constitutional Court, then in the private telecom company. At that time, Russia had a wonderful life full of freedom, full of hopes, full of uh, expectations of bright future. And while 1990s were amazing 1990s when we had democracy, freedom of speech and no political prisoners period. Thank you so much for your attention.
0: Thank you so much, Katya. Again, we're getting some questions and we'll get to your questions uh, in a while. But if you have a question, you can send it by email to kennan to Twitter at Kennan Institute, or right on our Facebook page. Uh, we will now head to our last speaker. Uh, it is Sergei Parhomenko. He is a senior advisor to the Kenan Institute uh, and also a prominent journalist Host of, of a rate of radio programs on Echo Musique, and Sergei, the floor, the floor the floor is
5: yours. Thank you very much. Will. Uh, I see now we have an important audience on this side of Wilson Center, so I would like to begin my remarks uh, by reminding that this audience. Uh, one of our very important news of the last days. It seems to me that any observer who is interested in Russia should remember it now. I mean that Alexei Navalny, the leader of anti-Putin opposition in Russia, is in prison illegally against the ruling of the European Court of Human Rights. Last summer, the Russian special service FASB tried to kill him with a military poisoning agent and know his state of health on the prison is very bad, even treating The authority do not provide him with medical care and do not allow physicians to see him. Yesterday, Alexei Navalny declared a hunger strike. And I personally, along with my Many of my colleagues, journalists and analysts in Russia, demand his freedom, and I invite everyone to join this demand. So now, about the '90s, I'm a journalist, a professional journalist, and the '90s were a very happy and uh, very happy time, and very and a time uh, full of great illusions. Uh, just these illusions uh, that Mikhail Fishman spoke today, uh, but it was a it was a happy time for for my professional and personally for my, my professional work, and I was also the time of, it, it was also the time of my youth. So my memories, my personal memories of the nineties, are much more positive than those of many of my compatriots. And uh, I'm quite realistic about it's uh, very personal and very special and, uh, and very sentimental things uh, for me, maybe like for uh, Katya or uh, Andrei Kozyv. Uh oh, I will speak about maybe some, some special and professional things, but I think it's, it's uh, something interesting and important today. What was the uh, 90s uh, in the Soviet Union? Because we have to start our, our analysis uh, even before 90s, in uh, 87, 88, the time of beginning of a series of important uh, political reforms in of Soviet Union. Uh, and what was this time uh, regarding the information, regarding the media, regarding the journalism, uh, even uh, global journalism and global information? The late Soviet Union and uh, the beginning of uh, independent Russia time was the time when uh, on, the, on the world map was, uh, existed a place he was uh, a heaven of informational of political journalism, because it was a place of the most uh, easier and uh, uh, fastest and uh, shortest access to information and to source of information. Andrei Kozlov was not only the youngest of. Uh, minister of foreign affairs in the history of Russia, but maybe the most open and uh, easiest minister of uh, uh, of foreign affairs for journalists, Russian journalists and foreign journalists, never seen before or after. And uh, Katya can uh, approve that this time of uh, constitutional court of Russia was the openest and easiest uh, time for journalists. And uh, never the, the um, constitutional Court never seen uh, such crowd of journalists working uh, inside the court uh, uh, and uh, uh, writing about the court because it was very Important things to discuss. Very uh, important cases to 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 to, uh, to describe uh, on this time. Uh, uh, the creation of uh, this uh, new political institution on the USSR, which uh, Gorbachev began to create. Uh, starting by 19th party conference on the summer of uh, 88, and the first Congress of People Deputies on the summer of, 90, of 89, and the second one uh, uh, on the early uh, 19, and the first Congress of uh, Russian Federation, and the uh, new formula of uh, uh, Supreme Soviet of uh, USSR and Russia, all this uh, institution was uh, very important for history of the late Soviet Union and uh, early Russia. But it was it was also a huge pool of sources, of uh, a huge crowd. Of all kind of uh, communist party functioners and the state employees, ministers, uh, uh, persecutors, uh, uh, governors, uh, high-ranking military officers, diplomats, uh, academics, writers, uh, movie stars, everybody, and all this was the sources all this was the sources of easy and fast information. So, but and this information was about the very serious things. It was uh, the dissolution of, of uh, uh, Warsaw Pact. It was a creation of new Russian economy, the privatization, the creation of uh, a new world system of security. Uh, it was the, the subject Uh, very important and very interesting for any professional journalist. And uh, we had lots of information about this. And it was very easy because the state at this time, uh, not uh, uh, even created any obstacles, any uh, system to defend himself from journalists. Uh, It was the time without press secretaries, uh, press offices, uh, uh, and uh, any uh, special uh, system to isolate the power and the press. It is a very special and very rare, rare situation. And it was a heaven for a world political journalist. And at this time, we saw in Moscow, uh, the crème de la crème uh, of uh, uh, world political journalists from United States and from Europe, Japan, and uh, uh, all uh, across the globe. And it was the very known and very respected and uh, very powerful journalists Or it was a young journalist who just began his uh, professional career, and uh, uh, their um, uh, Pulitzer's and uh, Albert Londres Prize was in the future, and uh, uh, I don't know. David Remnick was a was a young beginner journalist, and uh, nobody uh, nobody knows it, it is a Uh, future editor in chief of New Yorker, And we had dozens and dozens of David Remnicks in Moscow, from all the all the European and American countries. Uh, It was a battlefield, uh, battlefield of of the most important news agencies on the world. Uh, Agence France-Presse, Reuters, um, uh, um, Associated Press, Kyodo uh, Tsusin, uh, all the best, the, all the most important uh, 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 agencies uh, fight in uh, Moscow, uh, to have this to have this information. It was a very important time for Russian journalism. It, it's uh uh, time of creation of new Russian journalists because of this mention of source. That's the, the most important difference between Soviet journalists. He was interesting and um, from time to time very talented journalist, but without any source. Soviet journalists never fighted for source to, uh, to be the first, the best, uh, the the um, the most uh, the, to have the most complete source. Never. It 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 became important. It became crucial uh, only in the in the in the this this time on the beginning of uh, of nineties. And it was the the great opportunity for Russian journalism to work uh, uh, just uh, next door that is uh, that is uh, no, team of all-stars of uh, uh, world political journalism uh, and uh, it was uh, uh, a rare opportunity to learn the basic of professional the basic of professional ex- excellence and uh, to see in action the most important principles and standards, standards of American and European journalism during their flourishing era. During the time was everything was great with European and American uh, journalism. Uh, it's the time the, the, uh, the, the great newspapers, and the uh, big um, uh, private uh, TV channels and uh, the great um, news agencies. So uh, uh, it was it was uh, something who create Russian Russian journalism and. Uh, mm, It was before the other times, the times of uh, pressure of, uh, uh, of Russian state. This honeymoon on the relationship between the press and the power in Russia uh, was uh, not, uh, not for many years. And uh, just after this, uh, uh, I would say just after 96, 97, Russian state inve- invented the most uh, powerful and uh, most important instruments to control to control the press first of all the economic methods of control and at this time Russian state uh, understood that you don't even have to, to create a state censorship uh, uh, or some legislation if you can just apply pressure on advertisers or media distributor uh, company. Uh, So uh, this time of uh, 90s was a short time between the the birth of uh, new Russian press and the birth of uh, a Russian uh, authoritarian state. That's 90s uh, for me and uh, maybe for the story of uh, world journalism. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Sergey. Uh, we already are getting a lot of questions. But if you have a question, you can email them to Kennan at wilsoncenter.org, uh, send it to our Twitter page uh, at Kennan, um, or send it uh, via email to, uh, on our Facebook page. Um, Thank you very much for all your presentations. We have a lot to discuss. And I think the first question is a question that a lot of you dealt with, and that is the impact of Western aid and Western mentors and the Westerners who are on the scene in the 1990s. Uh, Blair Rubel in his remarks yesterday talked about the importance of academic exchange um, and that the important thing about the 1990s was that we were able to integrate Russians into art into academia into and, and international networks. Um, so I for the first question, um, and Katya and Olga and everyone have, have touched upon it, but how do you evaluate the Western assist- assistance? Um, was it that, it was valuable in the sense of integrating and learning about experiences and Western practices, or uh, what is often criticized is that the West lectured to uh, the Russians and really didn't take into account their domestic issues and problems. So I'll throw that question to everybody. Um, Olga, do you want to, uh, to comment on that?
1: Yes, with pleasure. Well, uh, you know, Will, uh, I think that uh, my answer to your question would be both. I mean, of course, uh, integrating uh, to academia learning uh, practices was very important. And uh, uh, I myself also is a person who benefited greatly in professional terms from the 1990s, uh, first, uh, because, uh I was actually able to become what I am now, um, a a scholar, a a political scientist. By the way, uh, political science uh, did not uh, exist officially in the Soviet Union. It's a paradox because uh, we hosted uh, uh, the World uh, Political Science Congress in 1997, but uh, there was no political science officially institutionalized in Russia Uh, until 1987, in the Soviet Union, of course. Um, So uh, for me, the the very way to my new profession was uh, uh, possible uh, to a great extent because uh, of uh, exchange programs. Um, I remember how in 1992, I was uh, invited by the chair of uh, my faculty, Uh, and uh, addressed uh, a question. Uh, What subject would you like to teach, sociology or political science? It sounds very funny nowadays, but it was a time when um, curriculum uh, at the universities uh, changed very quickly. And uh, in many universities, uh, people who yesterday taught uh, scientific communism were invited to teach uh, political science. It was not our case. Uh, our faculty was faculty of uh, philosophy. However, we needed to provide new courses for our students and we had to learn it quite quickly. So uh, I spent uh, a lot of time in the library reading uh, books. Uh, luckily, I'm from Moscow, so uh, good libraries are available for me. I, uh, but my, uh, uh, probably the most happy uh, uh, month was uh, in 1996 when I uh, was uh, lucky uh, to, to get involved uh, into exchange, academic exchange program uh, in New School for Social Research uh, in New York. And by the way, it was my first trip abroad, so it was amazing. Uh, and we had a six weeks uh, course explorations in political science uh, taught by Brilliant, brilliant people. We had uh, one day with a really uh, prominent professor from New York uh, and Connecticut area. People whom you can only dream to meet. Uh, and my, uh, my feeling was, I was really very happy because I felt that I understand what they're teaching about. I, I, I What I read prepared me for, to do this. And it was a great push to my career. Uh, I think that there were many people who did the same and for many people uh, in Russia the profession would be impossible if uh, what happened uh, in 1990s didn't happen and uh, of course uh, having uh, uh, opportunity uh, to participate in exchange programs uh, having opportunity to uh, buy uh, the literature for our labors because a part of my my program was... Uh, providing us with some amount of money for literature for my university. It was really very, very important. Uh, I, I would say that uh, what Canon did was uh, particularly important because um, uh, Canon was not only the place uh, to uh, which uh, scholars and uh, practitioners could, could came uh, for scholarship, Canon Institute uh, also organized uh, a great uh, alumni network in Russia. Uh, Canon Institute organized annual conferences for, for us, uh, and uh, it uh, created a, a real, really very good interdisciplinary uh, academic uh, network, but also practical, uh, we also have practitioners as a part of this network. Uh, that uh, helped us to build our careers inside Russia and uh, they, which helped us to uh, meet each other and to help each other. So I think that uh, this experience was really, really very important. On the other hand, uh, if you will ask uh, if um, Western uh, literature, if Western theories, uh, if what we have learned from our Western colleagues uh, was uh, uh, quite appropriate for Russia, uh, then my answer won't be that uh, uh, that's strict, because, uh, of course, uh, to be in the profession, to be able uh, to do research, to uh, make decisions, we needed to learn this. However, we also needed uh, to think how it could be adopted for the Russian uh, experience. And um, I think that it also was uh, very difficult and uh, probably we didn't, we were not uh, well prepared to do this job very well. So my answer is both. I think that academic exchanges were very important. Uh, But I understand those who uh, say that just learning uh, Western knowledge is not enough uh, to uh, do well professional job in Russia. I think that we need to do
0: Thank you, Olga. Uh, A lot of questions coming in, so I'm going to go to the questions right now. Uh, The first question is from Jeff Hahn, uh, who is a PhD candidate at the London School of Economics. And his question is, was the decision not to build democratic institutions an inadvertent mistake on Yeltsin's part or a deliberate strategy to secure a more personal power? I'm going to throw that to Andre Kozarov. And I think to expand on that question, several speakers have commented that Yeltsin and his administration began with economic reform and, put political reform on the back burner. So you were actually privileged to be in the room. Uh, How was that decision made? And what do you think were the consequences from that decision? Unmute, unmute. Uh, You know, like some
2: Said uh, before, it it goes both ways. I mean, it was of course first political uh, revolution uh, in a sense, and uh, Yeltsin was good on that uh, because he uh, decided to be anti-communist and uh, uh, very determined, and uh, he guided actually the political revolution, uh, an economy. We all were uh, very, very weak, uh, including, I have to say, uh, bright guys uh, like Gaidar and others for a very simple reason that none of us, uh, neither of them like Gaidar and the economic part of the the government had any uh, exposure to real. Uh, capitalism, or to anything close to real capitalism, so it was like uh, taken from the books. I had read uh, less uh, books on economy than Gaidar, of course, and uh, some other uh, uh, from his team. There, there was definitely a separate economic team. They read a lot and studied probably a lot, but it was only uh, from the books. And that's difficult, uh, of course. And uh, uh, they were, uh, I believe, and I I told uh, Gaidar at that time, uh, and he agreed that uh, despite uh, um, the last years of the Soviet rule there was an attempt in academia to provide wider uh, economic um, education and uh, to provide access to some uh, economic, more than economic theories in the West, but basic uh, economic education was of course the Marxist, which is not bad by itself. My two children, both are by now alumni of the um, Ivy League uh, universities in the United States. And both of them spent at least one semester, at least one semester uh, studying Marxism or Marx uh, um, writings, especially on economic matters. So by itself, it's not uh, anything wrong, but when it's only uh, narrowly focused on Marx and uh, especially with the Soviet uh, misinterpretation, I should say, (laughs) of the Marxism. Uh, So um, it was, yes, it was kind of economist-driven, driven, uh, and very simplistic economist uh, ideas, um, which again, was not there, uh, it, it, it was like inevitable at, uh, at that stage. Uh, and the simple, uh, uh, simplistic actually interpretation of, of Marx ideas, of course, is that you just change uh, even overnight, you just, try to change or change uh, the ownership, either to the state ownership of everything or back uh, to private uh, ownership. So the the simple idea was to change the ownership from the state to private, uh, to give it into the private hands and uh, that of course was too simplistic and uh, it would never work properly and it did not. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it was more complicated than that, especially on the road because on the road, the economic team started to learn more of practical life and how practically it's all implemented in, in real uh, circumstances, not Uh, in the books, but so many uh, uh, small mistakes and tactical mistakes, but basically it was a very, very simplistic idea. And unfortunately the privatization uh, to my mind proved that, uh, and uh, we still have this oligarchies and all other things and the state control. I mean, ironically, (laughs) the state control of the property, uh, which was, uh, uh, it seemed to be, actually given into the private hands, but uh, it's it's long and probably much more complicated process than that. It cannot be done overnight, and uh, in the end, ironically, the state uh, retained uh, the control uh, uh, of the major parts, uh, most important and most lucrative parts of the economy. And that's the basis of today's uh, regime in Russia, which in, in that sense, even in economic sense, is still very much uh, marked uh, <clears throat> by the same birth, birthmarks uh, of the Soviet Union. The Soviet Union was based on control of uh, economy and the control of economy is still there. Uh, so, um, I mean, yeah. It, uh, what what happened after that was not that political reform was disregarded. Uh, the uh, uh, constitutional battle continued to. The end of 1993, for two years, we were battling to change the constitution. It was not economic, uh, it was a political, legal effort because Yeltsin and uh, the whole team, uh, we all uh, very clearly um, understood that we needed a new, modern, uh, or uh, Freedom, kind of, <laughs> oriented constitution instead of the Soviet one. Um, so uh, no, it was not disregarded. What what was, uh, though? Um, I think one of the major mistakes uh, of of that team, and uh, of the pres- of President Yeltsin, it was that um, it, it was not. Um, accompanied by a sustained and uh, well thought out strategy and politics and effort, daily effort to explain the whole thing uh, to this Russian people. And that's what you have to do. It's like President Biden now is going to uh, states, uh, sailing his uh, his agenda, and and that's the right thing to do. And uh, media uh, supportive media and um, uh, the outstanding uh, speaker like Miss uh, um, Psaki uh, daily argues, daily explains, spends as much time as it takes to answer questions extensively. And Biden is usually criticized, for instance, for speaking too long. But that's what you do if you want to persuade. I mean, but we had no experience, neither we had experience in economic, economic uh, or kind of daily life uh, under capitalism, no, we had experience in uh, arguing for in democratic settings how you sell your agenda. So the agenda the, the idea uh, the idea was vague, especially in <laughs> President Yeltsin's mind because uh, if Gaidar and some of us learned something uh, about democracy, politics less about economy from the books. He even missed that because you can understand that he, he, he knew no English and his education was completely Soviet style.
0: So it was difficult. Yeah, um, I want to pick up on a theme and there are several questions uh, that have been offered by the, the audience. And that is uh, interpretations and impressions of Yeltsin today. Um, you remarked, uh, Andre, that the Yeltsin Foundation is still active, um, and I think Olga mentioned that as well. Um, so, how is Yeltsin perceived uh, today? And how does the the question that came from um, from one of our from Karen Siegel and Jack Siegel is why does Putin allow the Yeltsin Center to operate today? Is it for me? Yeah, I, I, I'll throw that question to everybody uh, because I think everyone must have an opinion on on Yeltsin. I uh, can volunteer with just very uh, short, short, uh, short answer, so that we have everyone else to weigh in on on Boris Nikolaevich. Yeah, it's very short uh, remark. Uh, they
2: just wanted uh, both ways uh, when they spe- when they go to se- uh, to to what is it, Yekaterinburg, uh, to the Yeltsin Center, they try to present themselves as a continuation of the Yeltsin's legacy as of a democrat or destroyer of the uh, totalitarian Soviet Union. But when they come back to power, they, of course, uh, want also to come back to the Same basics uh, of the Soviet power, and as Sergei uh, absolutely correctly started his remarks, and I think we we all should have uh, started our remarks with the Navalny uh, freedom. um, That's the illustration that in power they wanted Soviet style, uh, and uh, in presentation especially uh for the western consumption uh they wanted yeltsin uh yeltsin style early Yeltsin style i should say
1: can i jump into this question can i okay um yes <laughs> I, I, i'd like to 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 to, to continue uh, ask uh, and to answer why to the question why uh, Yeltsin Center is possible. Well, uh, we should remember that uh, Putin uh, came to power uh, as uh, um, a selected uh, successor of Yeltsin, of Yeltsin. and uh, of course it's uh, very important uh, and it was well remembered, particularly during his first term. Uh, and uh, uh, in, the, in the end of the way, he n- never uh, allowed himself uh, to criticize his predicator uh, too uh, strict. Uh, he um, probably, he didn't uh, say a lot of good, good words about him, but uh, he, he, he was polite. Uh, and uh, uh, actually Yeltsin Center is uh, uh, a center launched by uh, a private foundation. Uh, and uh, it is uh, a center in the honor uh, of uh, the Russian president. So it deals with uh, presidents as political institution. Uh, it launches some tradition of commemorating uh, presidents and uh, someday, Uh, Putin himself will become ex-president and uh, will be probably eager to be commemorated this way. Uh, So, in this sense, uh, it's quite possible. It's quite consistent with uh, the logic of the regime. Uh, However, uh, of course, as soon as uh, Yeltsin Center and the Museum of Yeltsin, in particular, uh, tries to uh, promote uh, a kind of uh, a positive narrative about the 1990s. Uh, and uh, it means that uh, uh, this agenda is a bit critical to what's, what is going on uh, later. Uh, of course, uh, it meets a lot of criticism in the society. and I w- But I would say that uh, the major criticism comes not uh, from the Kremlin or from official structures, it comes from uh, public uh, and uh, uh, I should say that uh, Russian public is rather critical towards Yeltsin. Uh, and uh, it's true for practically every uh, s- ideological segment. Uh, it's uh, clear uh, clearly so for uh, conser- uh, communists and conservatives. Uh, and it's even so for the liberals as uh, the liberal discourse uh, about Yeltsin's legacy, uh, during, uh, I would say, uh, recent years has become uh, more critical. I can plan, uh, can see it uh, easily um, uh, in my research of commemoration of uh, uh, the October 1993 crisis. Uh, in the very beginning, the liberal discourse uh, was, um, of course it couldn't be posit- positive about this tragic events, but it, 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 the major, uh, Discourse was uh, to explain why it was needed. Uh, Now, even liberal discourse is much more critical. But uh, actually, society and public uh, uh, are rather uh, uh, impermanent uh, about political figures. Uh, Recently, uh, we uh, celebrated 19th uh, um, uh, Jubilee of uh, Mikhail Gorbachev. And I don't know whether uh, my co panelists agree with me or not, but uh, to my mind, uh, this time, uh, the public discourse appeared much more positive to Gorbachev than it used to be before. So who knows, maybe uh, uh, attitudes towards Yeltsin also will change over time uh, as uh, we'll have more, uh, uh, more things to compare. Uh,
0: that's it. Thank you. Thank you, Olga. Uh, I see Mikhail and Sergey wants to wait and and Katya. So we'll we'll do a Yeltsin round, but uh, we'll then go to other questions. So we'll start with Mikhail.
3: Yes, thank you. Thank you. I just wanted to add a, uh, just a short re- remark on, on first uh, question on what was Yeltsin's motivation when he, uh, when he s- chose uh, economic reforms to prefer to economic reforms to political reforms. Um, and uh, it's just important to, to remember and understand that the room of uh, the window of possibilities was very narrow. And it's actually in, it was chronologically very narrow and um, we now all know this: um, uh, how uh, Yeltsin used to hibernate in important moments. At important mo- moments, when he actually disappeared from, uh, from 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 public life, when something important was go- was going on. The first uh, the first moment was September '91, right after the coup, when he basically disappeared in Boshirov Roche in Sochi. In his in his residence and democratic leaders actually went there to wake him up and to, uh, to, to push him to because now is time to actually dismantle the Soviet political Soviet, Soviet system to and to adopt new constitution now is the time now when we are all winners here we can we can move on uh, well of course uh, and 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 in two months it was already too late in November, even in late November, early December, it was already too late because it was already very hard to uh, persuade the Supreme Council, led by Khasbulatov, to actually dismantle itself and to go for a new for a new election. This was the compromise between them, between Yeltsin and uh, and Supreme Supreme Council, that they actually uh, put uh, the project of a new constitution under the rig for some uh, for some under the rug for for, for, for some, some 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 time, and the next day. Uh, the uh, the plan of reforms was uh, actually established. The struggle uh, started between uh, the struggle uh, for for life actually started between the between two branches of power in in, in Russian political uh, political life, which actually shaped the whole context political context of the, of the 90s between the president and the Supreme Council, and it virtually started the next day. Uh, after the the uh, reform started, like January, even before, uh, even in December already, and um, it was the struggle, the, the struggle uh, with it, it was a zero sum game, the winner takes all kind of fight, in which uh, uh, which actually shaped which which left no room for 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 compromise and for actually debate on what uh, on what political reform comes next, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So and and it was already too late. Uh, in in just the day the day after, and uh, when it so and uh, and speaking about Yeltsin's legacy, yes, I totally uh, agree. Of course, well, Yeltsin Center, um, Yeltsin Center. I think well, Putin can live with that. Of course, it it is regarded by some as uh, as uh, as uh, some kind of cathedral of uh, of uh, past freedom of what Russia would could have been um, if if it. Uh, but uh, it's not that. Uh, uh, it's not that loud, and uh, and uh, Putin can actually let it uh, um, let it live as long as uh, Yeltsin Center is not involved politically in real in real political life, and it's not. And um, and Yeltsin himself never uh, never I think never criticized Yeltsin. Uh, Putin himself never criticized Yeltsin personally. Uh, He feels personally on uh, this loyalty on personal level still, though it does not uh, extend to the 90s as as, as an era because he builds his image as opposed to, to the 90s, and when it comes to Yeltsin's legacy, of course, Of course, of course, it's shaped uh, the view on Yeltsin's legacy is shaped by 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 the by by today by the by the day we live in by by the understanding what's the understanding on every side of political spectrum and the ideological spectrum that uh, that it failed that he failed uh, that 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 the idea of free Russia failed that the project of Russia is it. As it uh, started in '91, totally failed, and uh, of course, and it's of course shaped by his last mistake <laughs> when he appointed uh, uh, Putin as his successor. And uh, it was, it's probably, it's it's probably, um, uh, in a way, dishonest to blame him personally for all of that. It's not his uh, personal kind of well. Of course, it's his load as well but not only his own, but yet it's understandable that it's easy to find someone to, to blame. And now the, 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 with every new day, uh, the, uh, the, the roots of uh, where it all started uh, are found, of course, in, the, in, in Yeltsin's era. Gotcha. Sh- short, short, short answers
0: though, because we have a lot of questions in the queue. Go ahead, Katja. Unmute, un- Katja.
4: Mm-hmm. Okay, thank you. Uh- that would be a very short, qu- one one short question to, to uh, qu- answer to, for, for two questions. So uh, definitely uh, the economic re- reform was a top priority and that is why Yeltsin requested uh, emergency powers from the Congress of People's Deputies in November of 1991. He requested the power to rule by decree for one year and he never tried to uh, request So uh, in 1993, Yeltsin had all legitimate grounds to dissolve the Supreme Soviet due to the uh, results of the April referendum. He didn't do that. And uh, what I must definitely say about his attitude towards uh, democratic institutions is: it's not that he cho- uh, decided to choose economic reform, and uh, that, and by doing this, damaged the idea and the necessity to build democratic institutions in Russia. Russia at that time already had a legitimately elected president, a legitimately elected Supreme Soviet, Congress of People's Deputies, so. First of all, uh, it was necessary to prevent the country from the economic chaos. And then uh, the work on the constitutional drafts intensified. And here, I must add that Yeltsin took it very seriously. My father, August Mission, was among the lawyers who were invited several times by Boris Yeltsin. And uh, with them, he discussed the options which were available. And my father proposed the draft, based on the American uh, constitutional model, presidential republic, where the president is both the head of the state and the chief executive. Uh, so yeah, and uh, after the second meeting with Yeltsin, my father returned and said, you won't believe me, but he read all the drafts. He read all the drafts. Uh, he studied all of them, and he took this very seriously. And um paying attention to the fact that we don't have much time left, I must say that uh The official propaganda of Russia is trying to misrepresent the legacy of Boris Yeltsin and the personality of Boris Yeltsin. Boris Yeltsin definitely had his pros and contras, but he was the person who uh, ended that the long existing tradition of guarantocracy, which was inherited from the Soviet times. The the average age of the minister in the Gaidar's government was 35 years. he stopped the uh, times of xenophobia. He Western, uh, he welcomed the uh, Western experts. He welcomed the Western democracies. Russia uh, was uh, uh, becoming uh, an equal partner on the international arena. Uh, at the times of Yeltsin, people of Jewish origin uh, got the chance to be promoted to the top governmental positions. That was unheard of according to the Soviet standards. So. Yeltsin was a great leader with Soviet training, a former communist who had a high appreciation of fundamental democratic values. He appreciated freedom of speech, freedom of press, freedom of travel, and he faced an, an incredibly challenging and complicated task. So he did what he could do, and I'm very thankful for him.
0: Okay, so we can move on to a related question, and it's from Mike Waller, who is a National Cabinet uh, member from uh, of the Wilson Center, and he asks, how does how do Russians uh, how how does the current Russian curriculum, primary, secondary, and higher levels treat the 1990s? In other words, how do you how does how do Russians and in, in elementary schools and universities teach the 1990s? Do they teach as a time of chaos, or do they talk about all the other aspects of the 1990s uh, in terms and, and, and also the opportunities that they presented themselves? So I think yeah. I see, uh, Olga has raised her hand immediately.
1: Yes, because just uh, uh, two weeks ago, I had the chance uh, to discuss this with the teachers in uh, Pirm. Uh, We had a seminar uh, organized by the uh, uh, university, and we discussed how to teach this recent uh, uh, history in schools. Well, the first basic thing is that this period is uh, uh, rather neglected in school curriculum not formally but uh, in fact uh, the thing is that this material goes in the end of the school year when uh, school uh, people uh, school, uh, when school pupils are preparing uh, to uh, take exams uh, so basically they have not that a lot of time for it however uh, if we take um, the program and if we take uh, school textbooks, then we shall see that this period uh, is uh, covered in official sources for uh, students in a rather formal way as uh, some uh, number of facts that uh, are allowed to, to learn about. So a lot depends on a teacher. And the teachers whom we met in the seminar were those who were interested in teaching this period, and they uh, said that it's rather difficult to teach this because there is no um, what could be said uh, uh, official narrative about. it. Uh, it's rather unclear how this should be taught, and the reason with, with is, uh, pretty clear. Yes, of course. Uh, uh, Russia that we have today greatly abandoned uh, this legacy of the 1990s. However, it wasn't done officially. Officially, it's, there is a continuation. Uh, so there is a, some kind of contradiction, how to teach it, how how, how to make it. And um, uh, we found during the seminar and uh, the teachers who do it in practice uh, supported it, that the best, the best way to teach it for uh, school children uh, and this material is taught for elder uh, stu- students who are in their 10th year, uh, is uh, to allow uh, multiple voices, to allow multiple voices, to allow uh, school children to read uh, different sources, uh, to discuss, uh, to ask their parents, how was it? And um, yes, we found that it's, it is it is very important. And... Um, uh, that uh, at the level of school teaching, there is also a growing interest to grasping uh, this period. It was amazing, really. Thank you.
0: Okay, the next question comes from Marta Chomiak. She, she says, I found out about the fall of the USSR when the editor of Okunjak called us to tell us to turn on CNN how would you assess the influence, if any, of the journals and media outlets of the time? So I, I think she's asking about the influence both of, of, the, of Western press and the impact of Western reporting on Russian journalism.
5: Sergey. Thank you. I think I, I, I spoke a little bit about it Uh, In my uh, vision, the most important impact was the professional impact, uh, like uh, an influence of Western journalists working in Moscow and writing about Moscow and about Russian life and Russian politics and Russian economy and Russian society uh, on the um, uh, Russian journalists. Uh, it was a uh, spectacular. It was a very, very important, important thing. And for example, uh, on a 1994, the Moscow Chart of Journalism was created. It it was a first tentative to create an ethical code of Russian journalism. And uh, even today, uh, many of Russian journalists Uh, journalists uh, don't forget this document. And uh, it is known as uh, maybe the most important, uh, uh, most important tentative to 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 formulate the ethical base of our profession. It was made without any doubt. because of inflation of uh, our uh, Western colleagues, and on the base of same uh, documents uh, like the famous dogma of uh, Reuters and uh, Reuters agency uh, or French ethical code of uh, of journalism, uh, uh, professionally it was a very important thing. Uh, another thing, it's uh, uh, firstly on the early uh, put, uh, Yeltsin's Russia uh, it was very popular to, uh, to see some, uh, some uh, Western television. Uh, everybody know what is the role of CNN on the crisis, crisis of 1993. Uh, and at this time, CNN was uh, one of the most important source of information about, uh, about the uh, situation in Moscow, uh, especially uh, when a, a Russian television was blocked and stopped by uh, the rebel uh, from, uh, from uh, uh, Hezbollah uh, has of troops, uh, uh on their the Uh, and the third thing, uh, 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 uh some of uh, Western publications tried to organize uh, r- Russian, uh, Russian, uh, Russian publications, um, uh, connected with them. I was. Uh, editor in chief, uh, on the maybe the, the most known uh tentative of this, uh, of this work, uh, it was uh, Itogi magazine uh, published in cooperation with Newsweek. Uh, it was a great time of Newsweek. Newsweek was uh, something like uh, four million copies printed all around the world, uh, so it was the best time of Newsweek magazine. And it was a very important, um, uh, important tentative uh, to create a Russian publication with him. Uh, Same for Financial Times uh, and Wall Street Journal working together to create Vietnamese newspaper. Uh, It was a very, very brilliant work and very important newspaper, uh, newspaper in Russia. Uh, Mikhail Fishman also, work as editor-in-chief of Russian Newsweek uh, a little bit later. So uh, it was, it, it was uh, something that uh, have a visible influence and visual impact in all the uh, Russian quality press uh, and uh, creation of uh, Russian journalism profession later. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Sergey. Um, I, I want to follow that up with a question for Mikhail. Um, and that is, you talked about the illusions uh, that now persist about the 1990s, and that the difficulties in actually not just overthrowing a system, but establishing new institutions and establishing democratic institutions and rule of law, etc. So from your perspective, knowing having experienced and understood the 1990s, if, an, if another opportunity presents itself to Russia at some point in the future, uh, what would you recommend to be the first steps to not only overthrowing, but institutionalizing these changes, democracy, rule of law, et cetera?
3: I'm not a correct uh, person to give such, a, such an advice and I don't think my, my advice will be that, uh, <laughs> that, that needed actually. It's uh, uh, if and when the next opportunity um, arrives, well, it certainly will at, uh, will at, some, at some point, but the circumstances of, uh, of this opportunity will be very, very, very different because uh, the illusions I was talking about, the illusions present back then, in the late 80s and early 90s, they were shaped by this, uh, by 70 years of uh, totalitarian Russian rule with, uh, with total lack of freedoms. On a personal level, Russia still is a much freer country when the than, uh, than Soviet system was. Even though we are going through some some uh, nightmarish political developments uh, right now, uh, yet uh, I, I, I can uh, I can be part of this panel, which <laughs> which was which was uh, totally imp- impossible in 1984. Let's say, so the circumstances, uh, the 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 level from which Russia will have to start will be different. These the context will be very different, and the amount of knowledge. About what uh, what the dem- what democracy is, what institutional democracy is, what checks and balances are, what uh, uh, what is um, mm, connection between different branches of uh, of power should it be legislative, uh, um, executive, or judiciary or whatever, uh, what it should be. The expertise on that is uh, of course much deeper even across Russian free-minded people, caring individuals or, or whoever, Navalny uh, who j- uh, went on y- hunger strike yesterday came up with, uh, with a problem of uh, uh, what's the correct word in English would be uh, bright uh, Russia, bright, uh, Russia of uh, our of our future it's a political program uh, program which uh, which is uh, well you can probably argue about some 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 parts of it but you it's just unimaginable uh, in 1990 or uh, 1981 the the amount of expertise put by by a non-system political actor with the aid of uh, freelance, aid of experts on uh, on on every side of political and economic e- economic science, it's just never it's just impossible to imagine that someone would come up with come up with a, with a program like that. Again, it's probably not perfect, but it's a def- totally different type of ground uh, from which uh, we would and will hopefully embark on our next journey as a nation. Thank you very much, Mikhail. Uh, we're
0: coming up to the top of the hour. And so I'll just ask one more question. Uh, and I'll give you everyone a chance to briefly uh, comment on it. And my question is, how long can Putin run against the 1990s? How long? How, how long can Putin run? Ag- so so in, in terms of his amendments, in terms of his policies, he. He always uses the 1990s, as others have mentioned here, as, as, a, as a contrast from today's time to the wild 1990s. And I think he's done it now for essentially two decades. So from your perspective, is can, can, how long can Putin run against the 1990s and the so-called wild uh, chaos that existed in that time? anyone want hazard to hazard a guess
3: yeah I, uh, um, yes i i uh, uh, to make long story short uh he no he doesn't have much room left uh, he uh, he's uh, staying in power longer than uh, uh i don't know what two Yeltsin's combined uh, al- al- already the, the the memory of current uh, current generation just doesn't have uh russians just doesn't have uh, 90s in their memories anymore it's just been too long, too long time that he stays stays in power, and it doesn't work even on, on, on a propagandistic level. Uh, I don't think it works anymore. It's uh, at least it, uh, the the impact is weaker and weaker with ever, with every new day. So uh, so it's uh, the the happy happy days of uh, blaming 90s. I think are over or almost over.
1: Can I um, I'm very oh. sorry but I, I'm very sorry but I have to disagree with you Mikhail. I would be happy to, to, to agree, but I cannot agree. Um, I, I believe that Putin will run against the 1990s as long as he is in power. We do not know how long he, he will be in power, but uh, as long as he's in power, he, he will do it and um, it is because uh, it is very important for his legitimation. It was a really very important aspect of his legitimation. From the very beginning, till now, uh, he presents himself as somebody who has stopped the chaos of the 1990s, uh, who brought uh, Russia stability. And if you look uh, to public opinion, uh, I, I tried to demonstrate it on the level of surveys, and I would say that the survey of Lovada Center is probably the best uh, sympathetic to the case of the 1990s. If you will take Zoom uh, uh, data, it will be even worse. You will see that a huge majority of r- Russians uh, share this uh, idea of uh, Daesh, uh, the Dash 1990s. Uh, share this uh, memory of the 1990s as uh, a really hard period, uh, which uh, is not uh, worth to come back to. Uh, however, I believe that uh, this um, idea of how uh, of hard 1990s is somehow somehow a discursive construction, and what we can do is to try to deconstruct this uh, image. Uh, and what I strongly believe in is. Uh, we shall uh, witness uh, discussions about this period uh, in, in public uh, in public space pretty soon. And this will be probably the way uh, to learn uh, the lessons of the 1990s. Kajja gotcha. I mute. Yeah,
0: okay. Thank
4: you. Yes. Thank you. Successfully, um, I think Putin needs wild 1990s as a bad example because Putin cannot feel good without enemies. His regime needs enemies, both domestic and international. If we look back at the 1990s, somehow we lived without enemies, both domestic and international, and we success and we survived like to the different levels of success, but we did. Uh, For Putin, it's absolutely necessary to present Russia's achievements as a contrast to someone else's failures. And also enemies are a very important part of the current Russian discourse. There must be like uh, outside enemies like the United States, Western democracies, Ukraine, Georgia, other countries, and domestic animals and domestic enemies. Uh, like foreign agents undesirable organizations fifth uh column uh russian oppositions and uh etc and 1990s is a very uh valuable leverage of putin's propaganda do you do you really want it to be like it was in 1990s it's a very popular question which you can see both in the in research pieces in tv shows and in tv programs in use pieces uh, it's, there, is, uh, there is also an approach of comparison uh, of the success and tremendous achievements of the Putin's regime with uh, horrors, failures, disadvantages and complete chaos of 1990s.
0: We've we've come to the top of the hour and uh, the end of our discussion. If anyone wants to weigh, weigh in with one final comment, uh, Sergey and Andre, I'll give you the last word. Nope, Sergei's not. Andre, okay. So that we will bring this discussion to an end. I apologize uh, for not getting to every Just question. Thank you, Andre. Just thank it? you and thank everyone. It was very very interesting and thank you for your very uh, v- valuable input and discussions. Uh, this brings our discussion to, of the 1990s to a close, but I know that uh, we will obviously be returning to this crucial decade and these developments because they continue to influence Russia today. So I want to thank all, your, all, all the speakers, uh, the audience, and we look forward to you uh, attending future Kennan Institute events. Thank you very much.